You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk slash pm. Welcome to Parliament Matters, the podcast about the institution at the heart of our democracy, Parliament itself. I'm Ruth Fox. And I'm Mark Darcy. Coming up... More mud wrestling at Prime Minister's questions, but Rishi Sunak emerged rather splattered. And are Britain's armed forces ready to fight a full-on shooting war, should one actually occur? The Commons Defence Select Committee thinks not. And we've been to talk to Theo Clark MP about a new cross-party parliamentary initiative to address birth trauma, experienced by thousands of women each year. But first, Ruth, let's talk about the latest Prime Minister's Question Time. We were talking about it a lot last time round, and we mentioned how rowdy it had been getting and how the Speaker really is going to have to demonstrate the smack of firm government from the chair sooner or later. He intervened three times during the course of the latest set of exchanges, but it was still pretty rowdy stuff. Yeah, and he intervened on both front benches and tried to warn them he was going to send them out for his much-vaunted cup of tea, but he didn't. And we said last week that he's maybe going to start making good on his threats and start slinging them out of the chamber, but it just continued this week. Be they ever so high, you know, he may end up ordering out some front benches from either the government or the opposition quite soon, just to make the point. And if that doesn't happen, well, the shop window of Parliament, if you like, the most watched parliamentary event in any normal week is, is going to be to use your words, pretty mud splattered. Yeah. And that really was the position Rishi Sunak had, I'm afraid, at the end of, of PMQs. It was a difficult session for him, and it's, uh, you know, the, the ramifications, the repercussions have, have followed the rest of Wednesday and now into to Thursday. And basically, he made a, a party political culture war jibe but Keir Starmer for not being able to identify or describe a woman. And it was clearly a prescripted remark. And the problem he had, um, he had been warned. You know, the mother of the murdered transgender teenager, Brianna Jai, was in the gallery of the House of Commons chamber watching PMQs. And Rishi Sunak made this jibe at uh, Keir Starmer, who was clearly furious. Well, was a, a kind it. of collective wince. Yeah, and I mean, but... Laughing on the front benches initially until Starmer stood up and said, really, on this day of all days, should this be the kind of remark you're making? Rishi Sunak, I think if he'd have, have apologised and moved on, it would have been, you know, in the, the sort of parlance of point scoring, who's won, who's up, who's down, he'd have been marked down. But he probably would not have had so much fallout for the rest of the day. But the problem he's got is he was given several opportunities during PMQs to apologise and he didn't. If anything, he and his senior ministers now seem to be doubling down on this one. The line that's coming out of the government now is that Keir Starmer was using his mention of trans issues when Brianna Jay's mother was in the gallery as a way of distracting from a conservative attack on what they call his constant flip-flopping and his constant U-turns. And it's a very, very messy situation. Two, two thoughts come out of this for me. One is that this is the kind of thing that will happen an awful lot on the campaign trail in the forthcoming general election. Both candidates for Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, are going to be on the road having questions flung at them, finding themselves in situations, possibly facing the odd demonstration. And they've got to be able to be sufficiently sure-footed that they don't topple over into some 
running saga like this and get themselves into terrible trouble. And Rishi Sunak has demonstrated that he isn't entirely sure-footed on these things. Keir Starmer, I'm not completely confident. They're both untested no, I, on the campaign yeah, trail, yeah, to be honest. I, I mean, the, the best thing you can say about what the Prime Minister did is it was crass. It wasn't very fleet-footed. And as you say, on the campaign trail, he's going to face that kind of pressure day in, day out. Look, everybody knows in Prime Minister's questions, it's incredibly stressful. It's high temperature. It's very loud, very noisy. It's a very small chamber. And the pressure is on. Tony Blair used to refer to it as, you know, sort of the, the worst test of a Prime Minister, the, sort of the worst experience that he had to go through every, every week. There's a reason world leaders around the globe don't want to face this kind of scrutiny. And it's it's not unique to Westminster, but it is one of the things that, that marks it out. It's not great scrutiny, but it's a test about whether they have got that agility, whether they have got that sort of ability to switch from, from issue to issue, whether they can communicate, whether they've got emotional range, emotional intelligence, intelligence that you know show empathy well that's the point i think the empathy point is very important here it's one of the things voters clearly look for now does this incident demonstrate that rishi sunak lacks empathy and therefore gets marked down by the voters rather than the kind of normal political scorekeepers at prime minister's question time might this incident do him actual damage or is it just another one of these little westminster storms in a teacup well, I think a lot probably depends upon the reaction of Brianna Jay's family. Her, her father has already sort of criticised yeah. the insensitivity of it. And, I mean, as we're recording at this moment, we, do, we, we don't know anything further as to whether they will make any kind of statement, whether the Prime Minister is going to try and perhaps reach out and, and try and meet them. I think a lot depends on their reaction. If they let it go, then it will probably not continue in terms of the news cycle but if they are pretty outraged by it then then he might have an, a bigger problem and the other sidebar to this if you like is one of the prime minister's most vocal defenders has been the business secretary kami badenoch and she's very much regarded as one of his most likely successors if conservatives lose the next general election and rishi sunak stands down as leader she is first of all well liked according to the conservative home polls of popularity amongst the troops of particular ministers she's always high up the league she's very very combative and the conservative troops like someone who's still coming out fighting even in difficult times for their party and secondly her seat in saffron walden is one of those ones that the conservatives would hold under pretty much any circumstances short of an extinction level event so she she's likely to be a figure in any forthcoming leadership contest and she's prepared to go out there and fight even in difficult times and those both give her considerable points with the troops yep it does i think the other aspect of of what happened at, at prime minister's questions is also that a couple of other important issues um, have not perhaps got the coverage that they would otherwise have done one of which was an intervention by elliot colburn the mp for Cushalton and wallington conservative mp elected for the first time in 2019 very young he's only 31 um, and he made, frankly, an extraordinary intervention. He noted that this month is Emotional Health and Boost Your Self-Esteem and Children's Mental Health Month. And he basically told the House of Commons that in 2021 he tried to commit suicide. Now, he didn't go into details about why and the background to it, but it was a pretty extraordinary moment where he, he, he talked about feeling alone and frightened, there was no way out, the world would be better off without him. Now, his family found him, he got treatment, but it was a pretty extraordinary moment. One of the things that has changed in the House of Commons 
in probably the last five or six years, I think, is that people now seem much more ready to talk about really distressing personal circumstances. Mm. There are debates where various MPs, people like Charles Walker, Kevin Jones, have talked about their mental health. Charles Walker described his obsessive-compulsive disorder. There have been people talking about their personal problems. One memorable occasion where a Labour MP described how his father had taken his own life. Very personal disclosures that just wouldn't have been made in a slightly more emotionally buttoned-up age. And uh, maybe Parliament's the better for it, because maybe it does demonstrate that MPs are human too, and that issues can be talked about mm. that perhaps once upon a time just went unmentioned, not exactly taboo, but just never spoken of. Yeah, yeah. We talked about emotional intelligence, uh, Mark, and uh, I think it's notable that at the end of Prime Minister's questions, Keir Starmer made a beeline across the chamber to greet Elliot Colburn, put his hand on his shoulder, obviously said some some private words. It was a demonstration from the uh, the leader of the opposition that uh, you know he got the, the magnitude of the moment, even if a lot of it got lost in terms of the, the media coverage. Yeah, and that is something that's good to see because so much of Parliament is people shaking their fists at one another, mm. at least metaphorically. Particularly at PMQs. And particularly at PMQs. And it's nice to be able to see that they can put that down. Yeah, and actually that is the norm yeah. uh, in terms of the way that the MPs generally behave towards each other. And um, what you see at PMQs, that Yabu, you know, these attack lines, is the exception. And that's partly what the problem with PMQs is in some respects. It shows the worst side of Parliament, and yet it's the most widely known element. But it's very niche, and as you say, MPs aren't spending their entire time behaving like that and would be completely exhausted if they did. Yeah, yeah. So the second aspect of, of PMQs that I think got missed amidst all this debate about Rishi Sunak's comments was something else he said which again was sort of part of his prescripted attack lines against Keir Starmer, where he said, I'll take no lectures from a man who thought it was right to defend terrorists. Now, he's used this line before, and it's clearly something that's going to run and run through to the election campaign. He's focusing on Keir Starmer's professional background prior to coming into Parliament as a barrister, where he was defending a range of clients, as every barrister has to, some of those, you know, not people that you would want to necessarily defend. But that is a core principle of our constitutional arrangements, a country governed by the rule of law in which we are all innocent until proven guilty. And in order for that to function, we have to have lawyers who are prepared to defend those people accused of some of the most terrible crimes. And that's what he did as a barrister And the flip side of that was when he was head of the current prosecution service, he was charging and prosecuting some of those people. Particularly in Northern Ireland, where he was under police guard (laughs) for a while. So I I have a lot of sympathy for Starmer on this, because this is not something that a barrister should be criticised for, in my humble opinion, anyway. I do wonder how the Lord Chancellor Alex Chalk, who's supposed to defend the rule of law and speak up when these things are said, is feeling about his leader taking this line of attack. And I do remember when Liz Truss was Lord Chancellor and, and judges were being attacked in the press as enemies of the people, and she was suspiciously silent for a long time. That really hurt her in mm. the legal profession. And I wonder if maybe Alex Chalk may be starting to take some damage in the legal profession for failing to speak up on this issue or failing to make that point. Another thing that struck me, I'm currently reading a, a fantastic new book 
about uh, Marcia Williams, the life and times of Baroness Falkander. And she was, if you remember, Harold Wilson's right-hand woman, his sort of auxiliary political brain. This is a book by Linda McDougall, who was married to the late uh, Labour MP Austin Mitchell. Marcia Falkander was a fantastic figure in politics in the 60s and 70s. And there were all sorts of rumours put about about her relationship with Harold Wilson, Mm. the Labour Prime Minister she worked for. And there was an occasion where The Move, a popular band of the late 60s who had a top 10 <laughs> single. Never heard of them. Well, it was a single called Flowers in the Rain, if you, if you okay. want to. They published a, a, an advert for an event they were going to, which featured a cartoon of Harold Wilson and Marcia Falkander in bed together. And Harold Wilson, as a sitting Prime Minister, sued. Who was his lawyer on that occasion? No one less than Quentin Hogg, oh. the future Conservative Lord Chancellor. So Conservative, very senior, even then he was on the Conservative front bench a lot of the time, representing a Labour Prime Minister in a libel action. And it's a principle that the Prime Minister at the dispatch box is there, he's a player in our constitution, and he shouldn't be undermining the core constitutional principles of our democracy. And it's about setting an example. He's not just a party political player. And when he does that kind of thing at the dispatch box, first of all, it it creates an open season for for others to do it. We can see that in, in, in plenty of some of the media coverage and some of his backbenches. There's quite a number of barristers in Parliament on both sides of the House and if you went through their records, who they defended and who they hadn't... I'm sure know, some it, pretty unpleasant names would pop up. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the nature of the job. And we need more barristers. We know that there's already problems in the justice system because not enough barristers are continuing in the profession because of the financial problems with it and, and so on. So this sort of thing really just doesn't help. Um, but leaving aside that it's a cheap shot, I mean, the reason he keeps doing it is presumably that it works, that the Conservatives are holding focus groups that are telling them that this actually does some damage to Keir Starmer amongst at least some voters. So I suspect that it's not something that's going to stop. No. And uh, it'd be an interesting test for Alex Chalkus, who's been getting quite good reviews as Lord Chancellor, as to whether he's actually prepared to stick his head over the parapet and and say something about this, even if it's a bit coded. Yeah, and some of the other lawyers on the the Conservative benches. Which brings us back, I think, to, you know, (laughs) this is going to run and run, the election campaign. And one of the things that strikes me from this session of PMQs, but also, you know, performance over recent weeks, is how are these two principals, the heads of their party, going to perform during an election campaign? Because we're clearly seeing that, that, you know, Rishi Sunak's not very fleet of foot in the Commons chamber. He had an interview with Piers Morgan and um, got embroiled in a rather large £1,000 bet that he would get asylum seekers uh, on the plane to Rwanda. And that, again, seemed a bit crass. Um, and you can imagine other party leaders would have would have pushed back and dismissed it. And his extraordinary response that he took me by surprise, said the Prime Minister. Well, you know, I don't think that's much of an answer when, that's you know... That's an occupational hazard for Prime Ministers, yes. I fear. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I mean, quite clearly Rishi Sunak has wandered into a couple of elephant traps this week. But Keir Starmer isn't exactly Giselle on, on this front either. You know, he can be a bit ponderous as well. So you're looking at an, an election campaign which may 
perhaps come down to who makes the least mistakes least, yes. from from two people who are perhaps not the most adept political performers, mm. at least on, the, on on that kind of public stage. They'll be wandering around under almost constant exposure. Maybe they'll get sort of 10 minutes in the back of a limousine being whisked from one event to the next to gather their thoughts. But it's going to be a real test of stamina when this election campaign comes up and a real test too of their handlers because there must be people there whose job is to keep them out of mm. trouble, to steer them away from these things, to grab them by the elbow. Sorry, he's got to go off to the next event now. Yeah, well, that would also be the question about yesterday in terms of PMQs, how they've not realised and sort of taken that out of the, the pre-scripted remarks and just, you know, realised that the family were in the Commons Gallery. I can't see either of them willingly wanting to go up with a kind of Andrew Neil-type yeah. uh, one-to-one interview. And I think it also raises the questions about whether or, or not party leaders' debates are going to happen because from Keir Starmer's perspective, there's no real incentive if you're so far ahead in the polls to do it. And given that he's not that fleet of foot, there must be questions for Rishi Sunak's sort of party strategist about whether it's in his interests either, even if they are behind in the polls. This does raise an interesting question about these debates. We had them in 2010, there were some in 2015. Boris Johnson absolutely didn't want, famously absolutely didn't want to get involved in debates in 2019, and also ducked, uh, equally famously, the uh, proffered interview with, with Andrew Neil on the BBC when all the other party leaders had been through the Andrew Neil mincing machine and been thoroughly battered, and he just decided he wasn't mm. going to go into it. So, yeah, this is all folded into the kind of calculations that the party machines make about what have they got to win and what have they got to lose from participating in these events. And like you, I'd be mildly surprised if we had a debate now. Uh, Let me put the cynical scenario that what I suspect you'll get in this is negotiations go on and everybody's in talks about it but since no one actually really wants them the negotiations are a bit of a grind and nothing comes out the other end in time to be held during an election so everybody's got kind of deniability it was the other side that chickened out oh you cynic you (laughs) the other aspect that comes out of this that um you know, again, I think it's going to run through to the election, is that the government has begun to request that that departments and the Treasury start costing opposition policies. The argument for that is that the opposition can ask the government about the costings of their policies through parliamentary questions, so the government should be able to get costings, similarly, of opposition policies. But obviously they've got the benefit of the civil servants to do that, and it's sort of seen as a bit unfair. This is very perilously close to luring the civil service into direct political debate. But we've got to be clear, it's been going on, I mean, Catherine Haddon at the Institute for Government is the expert on this, and it's been going on, it's not new, it's been going on since the 1950s on Alistair Darling, I think, produced a set of costings of Conservative policies in the run-up to the 2010 election, so he, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, was was engaged in that then for Labour. So, as you say, no no one's without sin on, on this particular subject, but you would have thought a stronger civil service and stronger permanent secretaries might be prepared to say, no, this really isn't appropriate, Minister. Mm. Well, I suspect the precedent has been set. Um, mm. The nearer we get to the election, and obviously once dissolution is called, then they won't be able to, to do that. But the interesting thing is around the world, I mean, for example, in Australia, the Parliamentary Budget Office costs both... But I, I, I do get worried about the overemphasis on this kind of stuff 
we know my favourite phrase: the dogs on the streets in Westminster know that the <laughs> no, assumptions your, your favourite phrase <laughs> under which the uh, under which the budget is made, and there may be headroom for tax cuts, are what look frankly like completely unrealistic expectations of spending cuts in the future. So everyone can make the tax cuts, then the spending cuts that underpin them aren't made, and better bim, we've got inflation or higher than expected government debt a few years down the line. But at the time, the books appeared to have been made to balance. I mean, the books are being not just cooked here, they're being thoroughly microwaved into submission. Uh, you know, <laughs> the dogs in the streets in Westminster know that. In fact, every hound in a kennel in Battersea knows that. This is, this is a preposterous situation. And I do wonder whether with far too much emphasis is being put on it, when any incoming government after the next election is going to have to open the books and brace itself. And this, of course, brings us on to the current row about the £28 billion that Labour were at one point proposing to spend on a sort of green transformation of the economy. Um, that £28 billion was promised at a time when interest rates were about a quarter of what they currently are. So the, the maths is changing under it. Mm. But Labour seem to have made a complete hash of delicately withdrawing from that figure. And they've got themselves into a quite embarrassing tangle about what they mean now. And it, it just seems to have been badly managed. But it is very, very difficult to promise to spend megabucks when the financial situation may be impossibly tight when you arrive in office. Yeah. Well, with that, Mark, shall we take a short break? And we'll be back in a moment. Back again, Ruth. And let's talk about a select committee report that's thudded onto the government's in-tray that I think could set ripples going all the way up to the general election and indeed well beyond. It's the Defence Committee's report entitled Ready for War, with a very large question mark at the end of that. It's a report that suggests that the armed forces have been already overstretched in responding to a whole variety of situations around the world and they face declining stockpiles of material, they face overextended capabilities, their recruitment isn't keeping pace with the erosion of personnel that's been going on. And the ultimate conclusion is that if there was a really, really serious situation demanding the presence of the UK military, it might not be able to be put there for very long mm. into harm's way. And that is something that should worry the living daylights out of every single member of parliament, because... As anyone who reads the newspapers will know, yep. the world is not a happy place at the moment. No. And the, this committee, remember, is chaired by a Conservative MP, Sir Jeremy Quinn, who until very recently sat in Cabinet. So this is not a, an opposition cooked up line about the government's defence policy. This is a cross-party select committee in which it is a Conservative MP, senior Conservative very recently in Whitehall at the heart of government. And indeed, very, not, not all that long ago, Minister for Defence Procurement in yep. charge of the Ministry of Defence's weapons programmes. Yeah. So as, as well as saying, you know, the Ministry of Defence needs more funding, and if it doesn't get the funding, then, you know, we're going to have to think about reducing the operational burden on the armed forces. What was also quite notable about this report was how heavy they went in in criticising the government for the way that they'd responded to the inquiry itself. Now, we talked on the very first episode of this podcast, I think it was, about the appearance of the, the military chiefs before the committee and, and, and as they were beginning their investigations. And the report says that, you know, that they've been hampered in their attempts to assess the readiness by a lack of government transparency. They talk about the fact that information that their committee would have had a decade ago is no longer available to them and nobody seems to be able to explain why. And they say the government's taken an excessive amount of time to respond to requests for information and, and basically we can't adequately scrutinise what the government is doing 
if they don't provide the information and are, and are more open and transparent. And there's a very ugly suspicion floating around behind all this that the reason this information isn't forthcoming is because it's so embarrassing. Yeah, and um, they talk about, you know, we, we want the government to work with us, we want to be cooperative, they've had access to some sensitive briefings that obviously they can't relate in the report, but it sort of smacks of the sort of wider approach of the government to scrutiny. Um, we've seen the Intelligence and Security Committee, similar complaints that about government responsiveness, the time it takes for them to provide information, the sort of unwillingness to be more open and, and, and accountable. And it feels like a theme that now is running along the select committee corridor. One thing to note about this particular inquiry is that it will have taken place under three different chairs of the Defence Select yeah. Committee. This all started under Tobias Elwood, and that's when they had the three chiefs, successively former chiefs of the defence staff in, mm. talking about how dangerous they thought the situation was. And then there was the brief reign of Robert Courts, who was out of government and then back into government quite quickly, but was in the middle of that for a few weeks, the chair of the committee. And now we've got Jeremy Quinn having taken over. And Jeremy Quinn in all this, I think, is someone who should worry the government because as I say he was Minister for Defence Procurement he was inside the Ministry of Defence for really quite a long time got really into the weeds of things like the handling of the uh, Ajax scandal this armoured vehicle that couldn't go very fast and was so loud that the people inside it needed to wear earmuffs and risked long-term damage to their hearing if they were inside it these, these problems are supposedly now being addressed and solved but the, the, this is a project that's years late and many millions over budget so there there's all sorts of serious problems that he knows all the gory details of. And what I'm wondering is what his next step is. Having put out a report this emphatic about a matter of such very grave concern, he's surely not going to just sort of let that gather dust in the government's mm. in-tray somewhere. The government has to produce a formal response to this. But in the meantime, maybe he might decide that he wants to go and talk to the Backbench Business Committee and get a debate on this subject. Mm. And that, I think, could get very interesting indeed if he catches some government minister with a series of questions they're not prepared to answer. Shades of Winston Churchill in the 1930s, you know, talking about the, the lack yeah, of preparedness, preparedness for yeah. war then. And, of course, this is going to be a massive problem in the intray of any government after the next general election. They're going to have to find a lot of money, not just a little bit of money, yeah. but a vast amount of money for the defence budget, which, uh, mainlining back to what we were talking about, about the, the Labour Party's proposed green initiative, is going to be vying for funds with the needs of the Ministry of Defence, amongst many other budget heads. Yeah, exactly. Another inquiry that's uh, that's going on that we've talked about on the podcast before, the Standards Committee, looking at the standards landscape, the sort of the ethical and, and standards issues that, that govern MPs. That's the committee chaired by Harriet Harman. They are have begun their evidence sessions now. And there's some interesting bits of information coming out through that. So they had the leader of the House of Commons, Penny Mordaunt, up in front of them in, in the last week. And it became clear from, from her evidence that she's getting expressions of concern from MPs, I think across the House. I don't think this was a this was a governing party issue. It's, it's a cross-party concern about the operation of the recall arrangements. MPs suggesting that it's too easy to remove them from office through this recall petition process, whereby if you are found by the House... Uh, after an inquiry by the Standards Commissioner and then uh, an endorsement by the Standards Committee, you're found by the House to have done something wrong and you're sanctioned to being removed from the House for 10 sitting days or more, then you can be subject to a recall petition by your constituents 
and there's a 10% threshold. If 10% of your constituents go out and sign the recall petition, then there's a by-election. And, and only course, one MP's ever survived this thus far, yeah. which is Ian Paisley Jr. Yeah. in Antrim. And it's, it's clear that MPs have concerns about the thresholds, that they're too low. Are they concerns about the sort of the range of sanctions that are being deployed against MPs and whether or not you know there's, there's consistency and fairness? So it'll be interesting to see where this, this debate goes. Indeed. I mean, it's not so much the 10-day suspension threshold, and I suspect sometimes punishments are set by the Standards Committee precisely in order to engage whatever mm. the threshold is for triggering a recall petition in a constituency. So if they said it was going to be 20 days, you might find that the Standards Committee started doling out more 20-day <laughs> suspensions, for example. But the 10% threshold of voters... In a constituency, you've got 70,000-odd mm. voters. In a constituency, you only need 7,000 signatures. And most opposition parties would feel that they could drum that up yeah. most of the time. So that may be the point of attack here. Maybe it should be 20% of people on the electoral rolls signing a recall petition before an MP can be, can have their collar mm. felt by the electorate. Mm. Another aspect of the, the committee's inquiry that's beginning to emerge is this question of, well, look, we've been here before, um, you know, pre- previous parliaments over the last sort of, well, 20, 30 years, frankly, where we're, we're talking about the standards, the ethics of MPs, we're talking about bad behaviour, we're talking about paid lobbying and, and so on. We set up this alphabet soup of, of ethics bodies to manage the process, to investigate, to propose sanctions, and it still goes on. And actually, rather than institutional change, what we need to focus on a bit more is cultural change. And mm. is there an opportunity at the start of this next parliament after the general election, with what's likely to be a significant new intake of MPs, to do some things differently to better prepare MPs for the, some of the challenges that they're going to face, to make clearer the rules, to drum home the ethical expectations and, and demand more leadership, frankly, from the party leaders in, in, mm. in this debate. An interesting thing that's emerging, and in which I've got, got some interest in, is the concept of changing the oath that MPs swear when they join the House of Commons for the first time at the start of a new parliament after the election. They have to swear allegiance to the monarch, but you know that's really as far as it goes. And there's some suggestion that you could incorporate something where they have to commit, for example, to the, the seven principles of public life, the Nolan principles, which of course date back to, to John Major's government when they had all their ethical problems in the early 1990s. The seven principles of public life, so accountability, honesty, integrity, leadership, objectivity, openness, selflessness. And no listener, I didn't just remember those off the top of my head. I, <laughs> I had written them down. Um, but um, but yeah, a nice little crib sheet, just yeah. saying. Uh, in, incorporating those into uh, an oath or in, into a statement at the start that each member has to say, has to recite in the front of the speaker at the time that they sign the role on first entering the House of Commons. I think it would be a potentially powerful moment that they can be reminded of. You've promised this. Yeah, You've committed when, to this. When you get up in a court and you swear to tell the truth, the whole yeah. truth, and nothing but the truth, there is a psychological impact in that. And, and maybe it will wear off after a while if you have MPs taking this oath. But it does highlight something. Yeah. And you can yeah. then point to that and say, when you took office, you swore the following... And then you didn't do it. So that's quite powerful. There were a couple of things about this. I think, first of all, the people on the real front line of getting better MPs are those who select the candidates for the major parties, Mm -hmm. 
particularly those who know perfectly well that once that person's selected, they're probably going to be an MP, and that's in quite a lot of constituencies. They've really got to pay a bit of attention here to what kind of person they're selecting. Yep. They've got to make sure this person isn't going to be an embarrassment later on for a start, in, I mean, purely pragmatic terms. And there should be a sort of high-minded thought here that you want the best possible MPs you can get. You want people who are going to make a contribution to public life, not someone who's just going to sit there and stick their hand up and mm. vote according to the party line come hell or high water. So I'd like the parties to take that view. I'd like the voters to make a bit of a character assessment, which is obviously more difficult yeah. than not necessarily have vast contact with the people vying for it. But a little bit of attention from the voters would do no harm as well. Yeah. So a few years back, prior to the 2015 election, Lord Putnam, the filmmaker, Labour peers, now retired from the House of Lords, he had this concept at the time of the uh, the, the phone hacking that was, was going on. He had this concept of extending a duty of care for our shared but fragile democratic values. And prior to the 2015 election, I wrote a chapter in a book that was edited by the then Archbishop of York, John Sentamu, now in the House of Lords as well. And having this sense of a duty of care for our democracy... And that duty of care extends from the Prime Minister at the dispatch box in the House of Commons and the leader of the, of the opposition, but also, as you say, right down through the political system to the political parties when they're selecting candidates, to the MPs when they get into the House in terms of how they behave and how they conduct themselves. And I think the key thing here is it is a shared responsibility for our democracy that it is incumbent upon all the players, and that includes people like in the media, it includes the, the party leaders, it includes the local constituents constituency party members who are selecting candidates. It involves everybody in civil society. And if we don't all play our part, we are going to have problems and you undermine the system at your peril. I'd just like to take on also this idea that this is the worst ever parliament in history. I mean, the statistics Mm. actually bear that out in the sense that more MPs have been sanctioned, punished, thrown out, disgraced in this parliament and recent parliaments, much more than has ever been seen before. But at the same time, you've got to say that the systems in place for catching them and the willingness of people to raise allegations and bring them to public attention are now far greater. So there's much more ability to catch people. And I wonder if a lot of the things that MPs are getting stung for now have been going on quietly for decades, even centuries. Mm. It's just now they're brought to light. Yeah, and we talked on an earlier episode about the fact that actually a lot of these cases that are coming to light are dealing with legacy issues that that didn't occur in this parliament, but that occurred in, in previous parliaments. Yeah, all, all very true. But all the same, I suppose, the overall impression left with people is that uh, Westminster is a total sink of corruption. And I'm not sure that's completely fair. No, there are plenty n- of people in there doing their damnedest to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think one of those MPs trying to do the right thing is the MP we went to talk to this week in Westminster, Theo Clark MP, who is leading a new cross-party campaign in relation to birth trauma, doing it through an all-party parliamentary group. And uh, she had some interesting insights on how she's campaigning on this issue and, and the very personal nature of it for her and how she's using the power of the platform of an MP to take forward her campaign. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment to hear from her. We're back now in Westminster in the office of Theo Clark MP to talk about her inquiry for the all-party parliamentary group on birth trauma. Now, Theo, you've initiated this inquiry. It's a cross-party initiative co-chaired by Rosie Duffield, the Labour MP for Canterbury. And it's grown out of your personal experience. Can you tell us a bit about the inquiry and, and why you're running it? 
So I launched a new inquiry this week in Parliament, the first in British history on birth trauma. And really this campaign came about because last year I shared for the first time my own very difficult birth experience. Uh, When I gave birth to my daughter, I had a very difficult and traumatic long labour. And then after 40 hours, I ended up in an emergency surgery and having to recover from what's called a third degree tear, which is a pretty significant birth injury. I'll be honest, uh, before that happened to me, I had absolutely no idea that that could even happen during labour. And it was really that experience and meeting some other mums afterwards who came to see me about their own really difficult experiences from right across the country that sort of opened my eyes to the lack of aftercare if you like for mums in this country and that's what led me to set up the APPG with Rosie and and to try and do something to tackle it in Parliament. And what are you hoping to achieve so trying to tackle it what what is your objective? So I think the first thing is raising awareness. I was really taken aback at how many people wrote to me since I shared my own story. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, nearly 400,000 people read my original interview when I talked about my own experiences. I mean, I've really been sort of deluged by the public writing to me with their own experiences. And it became very clear that, first of all, I wanted to set up a, a more formal mechanism for members of the public to be able to write to members of parliament and share their stories. So Rosie and I launched this new inquiry And we're basically running an inquiry for the next seven weeks, looking specifically at birth trauma and running it a bit like a select committee. So we have oral evidence sessions in Parliament with witnesses coming in from everything from, you know, medical professionals to actually mums affected directly and obviously their partners and families as well. This is something that happens to thousands of women every year and presumably pretty much always has. Why is it only now getting attention? Well, I think that's such a good question. I mean, the amount of people who've written to me saying, actually, this happened to me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I didn't feel like I could talk about it with friends or with family or with colleagues. And there seems to be a real taboo around talking about difficulties in childbirth. So I hope by me very publicly sharing my story and I gave a speech in the chamber back in October and and launched the first debate in British history on birth trauma, that it's kind of encouraged other people to feel that they can share their stories and they shouldn't feel shame about something that's happened to them in childbirth. And uh, you mentioned that it happens to, you know, thousands of women across the UK. I mean, we're talking about nearly 30,000 women who we think are affected by birth trauma in this country. And quite frankly, they're not getting enough support um, from the government. You asked me what it is we're, we're campaigning on. Well, I think firstly, in the inquiry, obviously a lot of topics will come up in the next few weeks and, and I don't want to preempt what witnesses and members of the public will say. But obviously a couple of themes are, are already emerging and I think one of those is making sure that there's better aftercare for mums. And I was really delighted that uh, one of the new changes the Health Secretary just announced was that uh, following our campaign... They're bringing in a, a post eight week checkup appointment for mums. So after birth, normally you'd have a checkup predominantly about the baby. And I think we forget there's actually two patients. There's the mother and the child. And so I'm delighted that the Secretary of State, Vicky Atkins, announced that big change. So now the mother and the baby will have a separate checkup, looking at both, importantly, their physical and mental health. And in terms of what you leave in the inquiry as sort of a legacy, well, obviously in the last session of the Parliament, time's running out for legislation if the government wanted to bring anything forward off the back of the inquiry. What are you hoping to do in terms of influencing the parties for the next Parliament? Well, you're right, we are in the last session of Parliament, but uh, I do think there's always opportunities to influence governments. Firstly, we've seen a big change in the last few weeks alone. 
that the government uh, has added in birth trauma for the first time into the women's health strategy. That doesn't require a change of the law. That's purely down to the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary deciding on their priorities. So there are lots of things like that where we can be putting pressure on the government to make an effect change. And it may well be that uh, some of the witnesses do suggest changes in the law. And I'll have to wait to see what those proposals are. But I think it's really timely to have this inquiry now and to start this national conversation. And I hope that whichever party is in government at the next election will be taking very seriously the recommendations of our written report at the end of the inquiry and hopefully will be also picked up in the, the next parliament too. Is there a sense here that one of the reasons this problem hasn't been in the limelight before is that bluntly the boys have been in charge and perhaps haven't noticed so much that it's a problem. It's striking to me that this is also the parliament where there's been a lot of talk about menopause and issues around that that really haven't been much discussed in Parliament before. What's going on here? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm one of very few MPs who's actually elected and given birth while in office. I did contact the House of Commons Library and they told me I'm only the 56th female MP in history to give birth while elected as an MP. So I think that goes partly to the heart of the problem that we don't have enough members of Parliament who are in that situation who can then raise these issues. And I do think we need to do a huge amount to support mums across the UK, but also here in Parliament. I mean, I'll be honest, it is very difficult to be a new young mum in Parliament. I was very grateful to the Speaker that he allowed me to have the six-month proxy vote when I was on maternity leave. And I paid huge tribute to the MPs before me, like Tulip Sadiq, who did a huge amount of campaigning on this. And, you know, as you would have all heard from my own personal story, I was in hospital for nearly a week after giving birth. You know, I even had constituents making complaints. I'd not hold a surgery within, quote, she's been, had her baby a whole week, why can't I have a face-to-face meeting? And as you all hear, I was, you know, recovering from major surgery in a no fit state to be seeing anybody in my team let alone a a member of the public so things like that proxy vote makes such a difference to ensure that I could represent my constituents but also be spending time with my daughter and bonding in that important period but also recovering uh, physically from pretty major operation. You're doing this through an all-party parliamentary group so it's got the word parliamentary in the name you've talked about holding the inquiry and the meetings in parliament but it's not actually a formal parliamentary process is it? We are not a select committee, so obviously we don't come with all the resources that uh, things like the International Development Select Committee that I sit on would have. So I don't get given funding, I don't get given clerks. So I think APPGs are very much down to the members of parliament and their particular interests and the time and resources that they want to dedicate to it. I was very grateful to Rosie for joining me as my cross-party co-chair and she had a particular interest, again from her own personal experience, but also because of constituency cases that she heard from local mums and I think firstly APPGs can be a really important vehicle in Parliament to raise awareness of particular issues. Something like birth trauma you know had not traditionally had a dedicated committee looking at this work but actually it's been able to work across the house and I've been really struck in the last year how incredibly cross-party this campaign has been. I mean I've had members from all different parties coming up to me generally offering support, turning up to speak and debate, saying how can we help. So I think an APPG, if it's run well and effectively, can be a really important tool for raising awareness on a particular issue like this one. 
All party groups sometimes, though, are almost wholly owned subsidiaries of outside campaign groups who provide the secretariat, throw in a bit of funding for whatever purposes. This one, as I understand, is completely freestanding. You, you haven't got any campaign groups standing behind you saying this is what you ought to be looking at. We don't receive any financial resources at all as the APPG. I'm very grateful to the Birth Trauma Association for providing voluntary secretariat support, as obviously they have access to all the mums and the networks across the UK who've had similar experiences. And I do think the speaker was right to recently change the rules on APPGs and crack down on exactly what you're describing. So uh, there's certainly been instances of that, I think, with uh, other groups, particularly when there's international governments, I think, have been funding them. But with our particular case, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's just basically run by me and, and Rosie out of our offices and, and doing the best that we can with limited resources because we both just really passionately care about addressing this particular issue. And you've already started holding hearings, select committee style hearings with witnesses. Presumably at the end of this all you're hoping to get a health minister in front of you. What have you learned so far? We held our first evidence session just this week in Parliament. We had in a number of professional witnesses from places like the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology and the Royal College of Midwives sort of set the scene for parliamentarians about what are the overall issues, but also to hear testimony firsthand from some of the mothers who've been affected. And it was really difficult and harrowing to hear some of those stories. But I think it was so important to have them into Parliament and for MPs to hear firsthand the really difficult challenges that they faced. So I very much uh, hope that once we finish the inquiry, we'll then have a, a good set of concrete recommendations for government. And then I'll be writing to the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary with our report and inviting them to come and see us to discuss uh, you know, what our findings are. Because the other part of the work of one of these inquiries is the follow-up, is is getting pressure there. I can remember some years ago now there was an all-party group on stalking and its chair, who's uh, Elfin Floyd, who's then applied Cymru MP, got up at Prime Minister's Question Time, asked a question and got a stone-cold commitment from David Cameron that he was going to legislate on this. Is, is, is that what you're in your heart of hearts hoping for? <laughs> well, a f- a credit to the Prime Minister that I did raise burst trauma and adding it into the Women's Health Strategy before Christmas and I believe it's the first time on the record that a Prime Minister has ever even acknowledged birth trauma and it's now on the record at, at Hansard, which is fantastic. I was really pleased that the government did respond to our call to add birth trauma into the women's health strategy. That was only announced in January this year. That is a huge change and I think it reflects that women's health traditionally in the past has maybe not had the time and attention that it really deserves and I think the fact that our campaign has already had these early wins is a huge sign of success but of course there's so much more to do and really the findings of the inquiry will then uh, decide the outcomes of what we want to lobby government on next. So Theo if any of our listeners have had a similar experience or a member of their family has had that kind of experience how might they submit evidence to your inquiry? So I have a public call for evidence at the moment on my website, which is www.theo-clark.org.uk forward slash birth trauma. And uh, on there, there'll be all the submission guidelines, whether you're a member of the public, like a mum who wants to give their personal story, or you're a healthcare professional. We also want to hear from partners and dads because they're part of the process too. And we've just extended the call for evidence by an additional two weeks, partly because the volume of submissions is so great, but also I do appreciate it's a very difficult topic for people to write about. So hopefully giving them a bit more time will uh, give you time to get your stories in as well. So please do write to us. We want to hear from you from across the UK. Um, all the nations as well and and understand the sort of national picture about where we can help and, and what the challenges are. 
Well, thanks for that. Um, we'll put that information, the contact information, in our show notes so that if any listeners do want to submit anything, they can uh, get the details there as well. And thanks very much for joining us on the pod. Thank you very much. So, welcome back. Last week, the House of Commons discussed the new strategy and policy statement for the Electoral Commission, and this week it was debated in the House of Lords. It's a source of some controversy, Mark. What's going on? Well, this is the result of the Elections Act, relatively recent legislation about the conduct of elections, which gives the government the power to publish this statement, providing a bit of guidance for the working of the Electoral Commission. And the Electoral Commission, remember, is the sort of neutral umpire for the conduct of elections. It sets the rules, it polices them. It's the Electoral Commission that looks at how much the parties are spending in their campaigns and oversees that kind of stuff around the spending limits for campaigning. So it's an extremely important body come election time. And there's a lot of discomfort was expressed Mm. both in the Commons and then later in the Lords at the idea that the government was taking it upon itself to, as it were, give instructions to the umpire. A lot of MPs said that they felt that either this statement was so vague and non-directive that it was worthless, or alternatively, it was an attempt to influence the Electoral Commission too much, in which case it was dangerous, but it was one of those two things, and there wasn't much point to it otherwise. And when it came to the House of Lords, the House of Lords actually passed a regret motion about these instructions. It has no practical effect. It's a kind of pout of disapproval expressed through a parliamentary (laughs) vote. But all the same, peers did show that they, they weren't happy with this process. Yeah. I mean, the the statement covers quite a lot of what the Commission already does. So things like, uh, you know, addressing fraud, education and awareness raising, particularly around things like voter identification, which we will now need when we go to the polls on Election Day. You know, compliance. Don't forget to take your driving licence. Yeah. Um, Compliance with, you know, the political finance framework, the regulations governing the funding of elections and what parties can spend. It's looking at some of the sort of the new issues around how you deal with the threats posed by artificial intelligence and fake news and so on. And, yeah, the, the Electoral Commission chair, John Pullinger, was unusually outspoken. And this has obviously emboldened the critics in both Commons and Lords about you know, the, the government trying to tell the umpire, the commission, how to enforce the rules of the game. And the government, no, no, this is an entirely benign statement. So it's not a statutory requirement that the Electoral Commission has to abide by this. They have to, as you say, take regard for its content. But then, well, what happens if they don't? What happens if they share different priorities or want to prioritise different things in a different order? What then happens? And it's not clear. It's it's not at all clear. As you say, what's the point? If you just have to have regard, what does have regard even mean? So this is, as I say, either so bland as to be meaningless or alternatively downright sinister. Now... Yeah, I suppose you'll have to watch how this works during the course of the next election, but I think there may be a case for the next Parliament taking quite a close view of how the Electoral Commission has worked. And bear in mind that the Electoral Commission is not a particularly popular quango with no. politicians. It, you know, it, it's, it's the cop on their beat, if you like. They don't necessarily like its decisions or indeed its presence mm. sometimes, and sometimes they find the rules irksome, burdensome, downright illogical. And there are a very complex set 
of mm. rules around things like election expenses based on slightly unrefined concepts like the long campaign and the short campaign, how much you can spend after an election is actually in play, mm. as opposed to how much you can spend in the potentially very long build-up to a general election. There are all sorts of complexities mm. there. So it's the body that will sometimes catch them out. Yeah, and it was, it was interesting in the Lords debate. So there's a backwash here to the Brexit referendum. Quite a few people feeling that, um, in, in the words of Baroness Noakes, the Commission had been high-handed in how it had handled some of the inquiries into to the way that um, the very parties in the referendum had behaved. And Lord Hayward, Conservative peer, elections expert, he said that in the debate on this in the original act in, in 2022, he described the commission as institutionally arrogant. But interestingly, he then said, actually, now under the new chair, John Pullinger and, and, and chief executive, he felt they'd turned it around, that the, the commission was more efficient, more effective, more responsive to and concerns being expressed by parliamentarians and others. And uh, the, the, the sort of this statement, this approach was was not necessary. But the commission is accountable to parliament. So there's a speaker's committee. Yeah, that's That's been the mechanism, isn't it? The speaker's committee yeah. on the electoral commission. And, and this is cross-party. And they are opposed to this statement as well. It's been looked at by Parliamentary Select Committee in Commons and Lords. They don't like it. And yet the government is sort of pressing ahead with this benign statement, the purpose of which and the results of which nobody is very clear about. Yes, I I, I suppose there's a, a tension here because you don't want necessarily parliamentarians weighing in too heavily on the work of the election umpire either. Umpires have to be accountable to someone, I suppose, but in this case they're accountable to the players in the game, even if it's kept at one remove. So this all gets very complicated. Uh, I can't imagine what a better system would be. Yeah. Who else are they going to be responsible to? Yeah, and this is this is the the problem in terms of the complexity of of governance. When you, the further you get to the to the top, it becomes more difficult. Um, right, Mark. Um, in terms of uh, issue, other issues coming up, we'll be looking out for the results of the by elections. Oh yes, yes. Two by elections coming up next Thursday: Bristol Kingswood, where Chris Skidmore, the government's former Green Czar, departed in fury, I suspect, at the licensing of more fossil fuel extraction in the North Sea, and Wellingborough, where, as we were just discussing, Peter Bone, the Conservative MP there, has been sanctioned by the Standards Committee, and there's been a recall petition, and now there's a by-election. And that's, for my money, the interesting one. Both of these seats are seats that certainly the, the Labour Party would now be disappointed if it didn't win. But I think the small print of the Wellingborough result will be interesting as well because people will want to look very closely at how the Reform Party does that. This is very Brexity territory, Wellingborough. The former MP Peter Bone was himself very Brexity. And I think a lot of Conservative MPs will think that if Reform takes a large chunk of the Conservative vote, that will be a very bad sign for the next general election, and it could fuel the latest in this continuing cycle of sort of semi-coup attempts that the Conservative Party's been going through for quite a while now. Yeah. Well, I think we'd probably leave it there now for, for this week. The House of Commons is in recess, as I said, next week, so we will not have our normal run-through the parliamentary uh, events, but we will have a special edition of urgent questions, responding to all our listeners' questions that have come in. Thanks for all the feedback. It's been really uh, good to hear what you're interested in, what you think about the podcast. Really appreciate the support. And we hope you enjoy the answers to your questions next week. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Well, that's all from us for this week's episode of Parliament Matters. 
Please hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get the next episode as soon as it lands. And help us to make the podcast better by leaving a rating or review on Apple or Spotify and sharing your feedback. Our producer tells us it's important for the algorithm to give the show a boost. And Mark, tell us more about the algorithm. Well, what do I know about algorithms? You know, I write my scripts with a quill pen on vellum and then send it in by carrier pigeon. <laughs> well, before we go, a quick reminder also that you can send us your questions on all things Parliament by visiting hansardsociety.org.uk slash PMEUQ. We'll be discussing them in future episodes, including our special Urgent Questions editions dedicated to what you want to know about Parliament. And you can find us across social media at Hansard Society to get more content related to the show and the wider work of the Hansard Society. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk slash PM or find us on social media at Hansard Society. Hansard Society.